We have labels for doctrines, justification, sanctification, the Trinity. The Trinity is a label that's not in Scripture. But the point of labels is whatever you put in the jars of justification, sanctification, Trinity, etc., it, it better be biblical material. If it's not biblical material, then what's it doing in the jar? Because uh, only biblical material belongs in the jars with labels defining Christianity. So discipleship is the question, what is it? <clears throat> it's a composed label. Again, it should contain biblical material about discipleship. Shouldn't be vague or ill-defined. However, in our day, it is. I was watching a uh, YouTube video, Alyssa Childers. It was really good, although I did find out she glories in Southeastern Seminary, which is Arminian, which is fine, but it was, it was a good video, and she was, in, in, she was interviewing a fellow, um, and uh, it, it was a good interview. But in her advertisement, she's advertising this youth camp. <clears throat> and I thought, well, that was cool. And it looked like a really good youth camp. And she seemed like a very sober woman. She's part of it. Um, and she talked about they're going to have, they're going to, at this youth camp, have apologetics. They're going to talk about life skills and they're going to do discipleship. And I thought, well, what do you mean by discipleship? It was very clear she has a content for discipleship because she didn't explain it when she said we're going to do discipleship. In her mind, it's like, everybody knows what this means. The problem is, I'm not sure what it means, at least not how she's using it. A whole lot of people aren't sure. And so here is Alyssa Childers, or Lisa Childers, uh, not sure how to pronounce her name. She's using this term discipleship. It clearly has a life of its own in her mind, and it's still vague and undefined. And that's the challenge with the use of this term in our day. It's, it's all over the map. So... <clears throat> Discipleship is our issue, so a definition, a tentative definition I've sort of put out there to sort of pull in all the biblical material about what is discipleship. When you say, we're going to do discipleship at our youth camp, this is generally what it should mean if we're going by the Bible. Personally following Jesus as divine Messiah, only Savior, and risen Lord, according to his word, in the dynamic of the Holy Spirit, and in the context of a body of believers. That is discipleship in the New Testament. Now, nothing wrong with her using discipleship. I'm not picking on her. I'm like, oh, you should have used a different word. Discipleship, fine. It conveys this general overall meaning because we're going to do something about following Jesus, and that's good. But for us here, we're trying to be a little bit more explicit, a little bit more definitive, and not leave the term just vague. So we've looked a little bit at definition and terminology. We considered the significance of a bus tour or started a bus tour of the Gospels and sort of stopped the bus tour short because we're going to be doing the Gospels uh, soon. But in the passages we did look at, and primarily it was about the significance of discipleship, in discipleship everything is at stake. Your life, your soul, your day of judgment, everyone will have one, everyone here will have a day of judgment, and your eternity. That's what's at stake. That's what makes this theme or term absolutely essential to understand. Because without discipleship, there is no good day of judgment and there is no good eternity. Everything matters. So we looked at the context of discipleship. If it's got this significance, then well, what is discipleship? How does it transpire? How is it supposed to happen in our lives? 2,000 years down the road from the New Testament being written 
the first century church. Well, in context, we're trying to say, okay, what is the context in which discipleship occurs? And along the way, and we're smelling the flowers, and in Acts chapter 2, 1 and 2, we're smelling a lot of flowers. So just be patient. Uh, The flowers are... I just can't bypass the flowers. I'm sorry, I just can't do it. There's just too much there in Acts 2 that's just so good. But in the end, when we're done with Acts 2 and we come to that culminating section of Acts 2 and we see how this sermon of Peter is used by God to save several thousand people in one day, I would call that a real revival. And those people are brought into the context of what is the sort of nascent form, the the beginning form of of the body of Christ, of a church, and what a body of Christ should be, we will see clearly what discipleship is. But before we get there, we have this amazing sermon by Peter, which we will be looking at, but there's, again, this sort of event that occurs in Acts 2 in which his sermon uh, is presented. So we need to understand that. The general context of the Great Commission, Acts chapter 1, 1 through 11, is sort of a repeat of what we see at the end of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There are features in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts that if we pull them together here, the features of making a disciple. Matthew says, go out and disciple the nations, or make disciples of all the nations. And in the context of this Great Commission is Old Testament fulfillment, messianic reign, global proclamation, Conversion, turning from darkness to light. Water baptism, teaching people, and all of it in the power and dynamic of the Holy Spirit. So we started Acts chapter 2 with that in mind. Went through a little outline of Acts 2 because it's a very long chapter, and, but there's a lot of tremendous material in it. And last week we started on the event, the historical event of the Holy Spirit coming uh, on the day of Pentecost. And when the day of Pentecost had come, the day of Pentecost is, is a day that's 50 years, oh, sorry, 50 years, 50 days after uh, the Passover. That's how it had come to be numbered by the time of the, the New Testament. The day of Pentecost was uh, one of those harvest feasts in the Old Testament. There are actually seven feasts, but three of them are harvest feasts. And at these harvest feasts, you have to appear before the Lord. That's what's significant about these three feasts. These are the ones where you had to go up to Jerusalem. And there was a feast of the unleavened bread, which is, you know, upon the, it's just, it starts right after the Passover. There's the feast of harvest or feast of weeks. And there's the feast of ingathering or feast of booths or in another place called the feast of tabernacles. Unleavened bread celebrated the, Harley, the barley feast in early spring, harvest Feast of Harvest or Feast of Weeks celebrated the wheat harvest in late spring, and the Feast of Ingathering celebrated the harvest of olives and grapes in the fall, and that sort of closed their agricultural year. And Pentecost is this Feast of Weeks, and it's the 50th day again after the Passover. So when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. They were in a house, they were sitting, we don't know how many, Some could just be the 11, because that's what's numbered there. It could be the 120. Uh, I think the the commentators are divided, just really out of personal preference, because that's all you have. Um, And uh, so you can go with, okay, these are the 11 apostles that were in this house, or there's the 120 in this house. I'm tending to think it was more than the 11, because there was at least 15 
language is being spoken. So that might be something tipping it in favor of the 120. But a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of followers of the Lord Jesus in a house doing what Jesus said, you wait until the Holy Spirit comes. And suddenly, out of nowhere, as it were, out of heaven actually, not nowhere, but out of heaven, but suddenly there's this violent rushing wind. Just imagine a tornado. You can go online and see videos of people in tornadoes. We watched a brief one last night where a whole uh, gymnasium was just taken up and disintegrated. And they had all the video cameras inside as it was coming apart. It's quite interesting, but destructive. But this noise came from heaven. There was no wind, but it was the noise like one, and it filled the whole house. The whole house was filled. There appeared to them, each one of them, tongues of fire sitting on each one of them. These tongues of fire rested on each one, but it was one sort of tongue and being distributed. Sort of this unity in diversity. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled. That's the description. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Think of what being filled is. And they began to speak with other tongues. And of course, this brings us into the, the great debates that's gone on for several hundred years, at least in modern Christianity. What about tongues? What are they? And we'll talk a little bit more about those today. But they are other tongues, and we'll see in a moment more description about it. And they, they spoke in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That is, this is a dynamic thing. This isn't just casual conversation. This isn't an organized preaching or an organized discussion or an organized presentation. They didn't get up and from notes read. They got up and dynamically spoke from the Holy Spirit. And all you have to do is go through the Old Testament, see it happen, go through the New Testament, see it happen. It's a dynamic utterance of the Spirit of God. So that's what we looked at last week, and this week we'll continue in verse 5, and hopefully we'll get finished with this description of the Holy Spirit, this incredible event of the Holy Spirit being poured out for the first time on the people, people of God in the new covenant. So let's pray and ask God to be with us. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne. Lord, we think back on this day 2,000 years ago, a day that you waited for for 4,000 years, a day that you anticipated, Lord Jesus, a day that you were looking forward to. John the Baptist telling everybody that you were going to be the one who would give the Holy Spirit, and yet it was going to take you three years of ministry and a bloody cross and a tomb and a resurrection and an ascension to accomplish that. But Lord Jesus, for 2,000 years, you have been given your Holy Spirit to believers. What a joy it must be when a believer comes to you, you bring them to yourself, and there's that time, that time that uh, none of us know when we pass from death into life. None of us can really put our finger on. We just know that we were in darkness, and we came to you, and we believed, and we were born of your Spirit, and after that, we were believing on you and following you. Lord, it's a mystery. Uh, it's because it's a miracle. Your spirit coming into the heart of an individual, the life of an individual in a real way where your spirit is united with our spirit and we are born of you. Oh, Lord, just thank you for this amazing gift, for this amazing reality that we are adopted as children by your spirit. We belong to you by your spirit. And we are here together as a body of Christ, not because we've signed out a dotted line and claimed membership. We are all here together this morning, bound to one another with 
with a bond that will not be broken forever. Lord, every relationship that we have on earth outside of, of our relationship with you, every relationship here on earth will one day terminate. But our relationship with you will never terminate and our relationship with one another that we share in one Holy Spirit of God, that will never terminate. And so Lord, just uh, let us always prize that and value that and as we consider uh, more understanding of what that is from this incredible chapter, Acts 2. Lord, just pray you'd be with us, that your word would speak to us, that you would uh, work in our minds, in our hearts, in our souls, in our lives. Lord, that's what we're here for. That's what we come before your word for. And we ask all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Acts chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. As mentioned previously, uh, because it was the Feast of Pentecost, Jews that were sort of scattered around the world, whether it's Alexandria in Egypt, whether it was Rome, uh, whether it was Greece, whether it was Syria, all the places where you had these Jewish colonies, as it were, these groups of Jews dispersed around the world, hence they're called the diaspora, the dispersed ones, they were coming to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost because every male was supposed to do that. So I'm sure some couldn't, but uh, it was a great pilgrimage to come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And so there were Jews living, really dwelling there in Jerusalem. It's not so much that these are permanent Jews. Some of them would be. Um, As you'll recall in the book of Acts chapter 6, it's called the Hellenist Jews were having problems with really what we call the Palestinian Jews. See, back then, if you were a Palestinian Jew... You were here, if you were a Hellenist Jew from another place besides Palestine, well, you were kind of here, you see. They had this sort of pecking order. And so the true, pure, real Jew was, you know, a Palestinian Jew, a Jerusalem Jew. And so we know that there were Jews living in Jerusalem, and some from Palestine had come to, uh, or rather some from like all the diaspora, some would move to back to Jerusalem, back to Palestine. They were still, you know, maybe second class, really, in the end. And uh, that carried over into the church. We see it in Acts 6, where it says the uh, Hellenist Jews, those from other places, uh, uh, felt like they were getting a raw deal in the distribution of money from the Palestinian Jews. So they thought, for sure, you know, for sure, I'm you know, getting some uh, uh, social justice problems here. And the church solved it. <clears throat> But there were Jews living in Jerusalem. Some of these are really dwelling in Jerusalem. Some of them were visiting. Some of them were from the diaspora and had moved there. Some were Palestinian Jews themselves. They're devout people. I mean, these are, these are folks who follow God. There are a lot of Jews who didn't follow the Lord, just like today. I mean, it's just amazing how many Jews are atheists. It's, it's crazy when you think of it. Uh, How many Jews don't follow their own Old Testament? And there are probably a lot of Jews in Palestine because Jesus said it was an evil and adulterous generation just 50, 100 days before. That hadn't changed much. But these were devout men of every nation under heaven. These were people dwelling, coming, staying in Jerusalem, and they were people who loved God, people who were seriously following God. Now he says, from every nation under heaven. 
In a moment, we're going to see the, the places that he lists, and we're going to find out that there's places missing from that, actually a lot of places. He can't list everything, or you'd have three or four chapters of just all the places on earth. But this is sort of an exaggeration. It literally wasn't from every nation under heaven. This is not an error in the Bible. There weren't people there from, you know, China uh, or over in Siberia, okay, because Jews didn't have colonies there. But they were coming from all over the known world, the world in which, you know, you weren't on the edge of the map that day. They were from the, the normal mapped areas. Every nation under heaven. That's just how the Bible sees the world. So, nations under heaven, nations under God. This is God's world. This is not the world's world. This is not the secular person's world. This is not the secular scientist's world. This is not the, the totalitarian's world. It's not the secular political person's world. It's not the state's world. This is God's world. Every nation under heaven. They're from all over. The majority of the first century geography was being represented by these people. And when the sound occurred, well, the crowd came together. So the picture is, folks are sitting in a house, there's this noise of the Holy Spirit like a freight train or a tornado. The Holy Spirit comes like a fire and is departing on everybody that's in the house. And there's a crowd outside that hears the noise and perhaps hears the speaking of their language and they are attracted and so the people in the house probably sort of have to just to keep the scenery you know, consistent are spilling out of the house and still speaking in tongues. So this crowd comes together. But the crowd was bewildered. Anyway, there's two states of mind in this crowd that are happening at the same time. First of all, they're bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. This is a multicultural crowd. They're from a whole lot of places, and they are perplexed at this phenomena of this noise, but even more so of hearing in their own language the works of God. This was a very unique event. They weren't sure what the phenomenon means. So think if you were downtown at the mall and all of a sudden you encounter this group of people speaking in all these languages and people around you saying, well, wait a minute, I'm from Ukraine, they're speaking Ukrainian, I'm from here and they're speaking this. At first you might think, well, there's a lot of people from all over the world here and then you start realizing, no, these people are from Pelzer. They don't know Ukrainian, okay? They don't know these things. And so you start going, what is happening, all right? So the first thing is you're like, well, what's going on? I'm, I'm a little perplexed about this. I'm bewildered because people were hearing languages that could not possibly be found in Pelzer at the same time. At the same time, they're amazed. They're astonished because it is happening and they even express, hey, aren't all these who, you know, who are speaking, aren't they Galileans, aren't they from Pelzer? 
You see, in, G in Palestine at that time, if you wanted to know about fishing and farming, you went to the Galilee Community College because that's what they did best up there. And my hat's off to them. When I watch some farming YouTube videos just to sort of see how it's done, I'm like, gosh, these guys know what they're doing. It takes a lot to get food from the ground to the table. And uh, these are uh, pretty amazing folks. But nevertheless, it's, they're focused on farming, fishing, the Galilee Community College. I mean, you could figure that out. But you wouldn't expect them to be speaking languages, native languages, regional dialects from all over the world. If you wanted that, you'd have to go to the university in Alexandria, in Egypt, or in Athens, or in Rome. You wouldn't expect it from Galileans. And so they were amazed and astonished. So they're perplexed, what in the world's going on? But yet they're amazed and astonished, sort of this mix of emotions and feelings and thoughts going around. And they articulated even more, how is it that we hear them in our own language in which we were born? Again, the, the normal language of the day to you know, talk in, the, in commerce wasn't going to be your little dialect. It was going to be Greek or Aramaic or possibly Latin. Those were you know, terms known. It's kind of like English is spoken in a lot of places in the world. It's kind of, kind of the commercial language in many places. But that's not what they're talking about. That's not what these tongues are saying, these folks speaking in tongues. We're hearing it in our own language, in our own dialect, in which we were born. Mm -hmm. And then 15 places are enumerated. It's a sampling of 15 countries that represent the whole. There's Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, that's kind of in modern day uh, Turkey, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, those are, again, modern-day Turkey. Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, that's North Africa, visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes. Cretans, the islands, and then the Arabs, that's interesting, from out in the deserts. We hear them in our own tongues speaking the mighty deeds of God. And that's what we want to sort of open up a little bit and camp on a little bit here this morning. When I was in Pentecostalism, <clears throat> one of the popular assessments was this. If you were going to get the baptism in the Holy Spirit, the proof of it is that you speak in tongues. So it was, I kind of boiled it down to tongues as necessary evidence. And then I boiled it down even further and called it the T&E. Tongues is necessary evidence. Because I get on forums and have to have discussion boards and have, you know, mild or not so mild debates with folks about it. T&E. Is T&E true? Do you have to have tongues as the necessary evidence that you have been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Now, many of these discussions, folks would allude to Acts 2 and say, see, they spoke in tongues. And then they'll go to Acts chapter 10. See, they spoke in tongues. And then they'll go to Acts chapter 19 and they'll say, see, they spoke in tongues. Therefore, tongues are the necessary evidence that you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, by tongues as necessary evidence, they meant the tongues of 1 Corinthians 14 speaking in an unknown tongue. 
Now, I don't have it down on my page here cause, or on my, uh, my presentation here. So turn to 1 Corinthians 14 real quick just to demonstrate that there is such a thing as an unknown tongue. 1 Corinthians 14. Paul in chapter 13, of course, the great chapter on love says, you know, that these are the things that endure forever. Tongues, prophecies, etc., they will cease when the Lord returns. Not until then. But even though he says the greater things are faith, hope, and love, even though he says these are the greater things, he doesn't want to say, well, because those are the greater things, then let's just throw tongues out the window. He doesn't say that. Now, a lot of conservatives do today. They don't understand tongues. They, they get confused about tongues. They look at surface issues instead of the deeper issues. And they try to fix the wrong problem by just throwing tongues out. Tongues is not the problem with the charismatic movement. The problem with the charismatic movement is they're not grounded in the word of God. They don't draw their sustenance from scripture. I know, I was in it for 10 years. And it was just heartbreaking to see people naming the name of Christ, but they knew so little out of their Bible. And yet they were excited about the sensationalism of speaking in tongues and prophecies and these things. But someone come along and they tried to tell me for 10 years, well, more than that, up to this very day, really, for 50 years, that tongues are gibberish and tongues are done away. I don't believe either of those two things because the Bible doesn't present either of those two things. So chapter 14, verse one, follow after love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts or just spiritual spirituals, but rather that you might prophesy. So faith, hope, and love, yes, those are your focus points. But looking for spiritual gifts to be operative in your life, absolutely don't neglect that. Problem with conservatism, the problem with cessationists, it's like, they just don't read this passage, I guess. I don't know. Maybe they do and just bypass it, or maybe they do and sort of filter it out. I don't know how they, how they get past this. Now, Paul says, if you're going to exercise these spiritual gifts in the body, which is the assumption, then tongues, and we'll see in a minute why, tongues really aren't for the body. Tongues are for you. Tongues are for you to be edified. And yes, there's nothing wrong with you being edified. Not a thing wrong with it. <laughs> Otherwise, if there's something wrong with being edified with tongues, then also there's something wrong with reading your Bibles, and there's something wrong with praying, because those edify you too. So if we had to do away with tongues, because it's just self-edification, that's one of the arguments cessation will make, cessationists will, then you've got to throw it all out. Tongues are great. Tongues are fabulous. This apostle writing this letter who knew the truth, who had the revelations from God, who'd been in the third heaven, he still said, tongues are awesome. I always wonder when I hear a cessationist saying that, uh, you know, tongues are done away with because they're gibberish, and there's still popular Bible teachers saying that. I'm like, well, what do you do with Paul? Because he was there in the first century speaking in tongues everywhere. The supposed gibberish as they label it. It's just, it's just interesting to hear them say it. But basically tongues are for you and God and prophecy is for the body. So Paul says if you're going to desire spiritual gifts, great. 
But focus properly, and if you're going to be in the body, utilize those spiritual gifts that edify others. You don't go to church to pray by yourself. You go to church to pray with others. You go to church to contribute to the body and to benefit from the body. It's a collective experience, and so do collective things, not individual things. That's his point. And then from verse 2 on through, gosh, you know, about verse 19, he explains what tongues are and the difference between tongues and prophecy. Both of them are dynamic spiritual gifts articulated in the previous chapter. And in that previous chapter, he says, do all speak with tongues? No. So tongues are not a necessary evidence of anything. They're a good thing to have, but they're not a necessary evidence. But he says in verse 2, here's the nature of a tongue. He that speaks in a tongue speaks not unto men. Human beings are not the audience. Human language is not the communication medium. Speaking in tongues speaks to God, not to people. It may sound like gibberish to people, but it's not. Now, we don't have time to go through this whole passage. It's interesting, uh, for years, because we believe in the gifts of the Spirit here, everybody, well, some, some folks have been, I think, waiting on the edge of their, seat, their seats for us to collapse into charismatic chaos. Now, we haven't done it yet, um, but I'm still sure that they're ready any day now we're going to collapse into crazy. And interestingly, they would say that we're focused on the gifts. I'm like, I've never really taught on this passage in 1 Corinthians 14, ever. The only thing I would, I mean, I would love to one day. We might even do it next week, who knows. But I would say this, if you want to know what tongues are, whether you believe in tongues or don't believe in tongues, if you want to know what the Bible has to say about it, then get you a piece of paper, draw a line down the middle, on one heading put tongues, and on the other heading put prophecy, and every noun, verb, and adjective about tongues put in that column, and every noun, verb, and adjective about prophecy put in that column, and when you're done, you'll know exactly what they are. And if you're paying attention, don't have bias, aren't like angsted because, oh, doggone, these tongues are done. If you're unbiased and looking at it, you're going to go, tongues are totally awesome. They're just for me and God, not for me and others. And you'll say with Paul, I thank God that I speak with tongues more than you all, but if you don't speak with tongues, I don't. There's others who know. I mean, I've asked for the gift of tongues from the Lord every now and then. I'll get bold to say, Lord, those tongues, any day now, if you want to give me the gift of tongues, I'm here. I'm ready. He hasn't given it to me. I've, I've had the gift of prophecy and functioned in that, but not tongues. But when I read this chapter, I go, what an awesome thing. And it's basically tongues you can, if you want to just give a, sort of a general description of tongues, it's this. Most of the time when we are living our Christian life, it's pretty mundane, right? We believe in the Lord. We have that pilot light of the Holy Spirit on. But we're not all excited about God, you know. Every now and then we'll go, gosh, I haven't thought about God all day. What's wrong with me, you know? Because you've been so busy about life. 
But then there's those times when the Lord starts to draw near, whether it's for an hour, a day, a week, a month, a year. I spent three years of personal revival in my life. Every day was cloud nine for three years. Then it changed. But, but the Lord draws near to you. Like in the last song just singing this morning, and, and the Lord draws near and the Lord fills your heart and you start worshiping God. And you have a sense of the glory of God. And you have, start to have a sense that this glory of God is just big and vast. You start thinking of the Psalms. Lord, who can enumerate your greatness? And you start realizing there's just not enough words to express the glory of God. You're in his presence, you see him. He's infinite. You're having a Revelation chapter four slash five experience. And you just wish, I wish I had, I wish I had more words to praise God with. And God says, oh, that's what you want? I've got some of those words for you. It's called speaking in tongues. It's called God giving you in your spirit an ability to worship God from the depths of your being with words that are beyond human language. And it's glorious and it's edifying and it's real. That's what speaking in tongues is. So be careful that you don't label it gibberish. It's not. Paul opens the chapter with the tongue of men and angels. And some say, well, that doesn't apply. I'm like, how does that not apply? Are you kidding me? It's the tongue of angels. That doesn't apply, really, when that's what he talks about in the chapter? It always blows my mind when scholars just can't seem to understand the Bible because they trip over their own preconceived theology. This is the tongue of angels. If you want it, ask the Lord for it. You won't go crazy, okay? At least not here. We will keep you, because we're not, you know, we're not falling off the edge of our seats in the charismatic chaos. We're just not. Ask the Lord for it. So this is an unknown language which God gives to some believers for personal worship of the living God. To get beyond the limitation of the language of human words and start living in the limitations of angelic words. But those are limited too. I mean, there's always going to be a limit. God's infinite. But that's not what's going on here in Acts chapter 2. This is not 1 Corinthians 14 tongues. This is something different. We are hearing these people speak in our own tongues, and it has content called the mighty works of God. I'm pretty sure unknown tongues, that's pretty much the content too, personalized. But here it's very clear, this is a public expression with an audience that will understand, an audience that God is trying to get their attention, that something has happened 
As Peter will start to say, 50 days ago, you crucified the Lord of glory, the Prince of life. You killed the Prince of life, but he's been raised from the dead. And there's great implications with that. That's the essence of Peter's sermon. But they are speaking the mighty deeds of God. And this is what I found when I was in the charismatic movement for a decade is there was so little understanding of the Bible, so little appreciation of who God is. All of the exercise of spiritual gifts just felt surface and contrived because most of it was. Many people that I knew in that era later confessed that they just were doing speaking in tongues or talking about a dream or a prophecy because everybody else was. But I also know people who are real. Speaking in tongues the mighty deeds of God. Acts chapter 10, verse 44 and 46, you may remember in Acts 10, it's the whole chapter is about Cornelius, who was a Roman soldier. He was from Italy, he was Italian. He was a centurion, so he, I believe, so he was up there. And he had a dream that said, you need to go find Peter, Joppa, and bring him to your house so that he will give to you, speak to you, words so that you might be saved. And Peter comes and he speaks to them and the Holy Spirit falls on them and things happen and it's quite an amazing experience. Interestingly, you know, people have been saying, I heard that there's, uh, someone was reporting that there are a lot of uh, Islamic folks in Islamic countries getting dreams. And there's variations of how these dreams are. And I'm always, when I hear these things, it's not that I'm skeptical, it's like, okay, I've I've heard a lot of stuff before. (laughs) Okay, I've been around for 50 years. I've heard a lot of things that, that just weren't true. Things get bigger and bigger as they're told. But some of them rang true because they fit the pattern of Cornelius. Reports that men would come to a church, walk a couple hundred miles to a church. Islamic folks would come to that church and and the pastor would say, well, why'd you come here? He said, well, we had a dream that told us to come here to hear words of salvation. Now that I believe, because that's in Acts chapter 10. That's what we're looking at here. So Peter was preaching. He basically just outlined the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. It says, while Peter was still speaking these words, Acts 10, 44 through 46, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who were listening to the message. Holy Spirit just fell. They hadn't been baptized. So this isn't baptismal regeneration. That's out the window. The Holy Spirit just fell because they believed. And all the circumcised believers who came with Peter, all the Jews, they were amazed because, see, in Acts chapter 2, it was Jews getting the Holy Spirit, even though they're all over, from all over the map. Here it's Gentiles getting the Holy Spirit. This is a big deal. This is a big sort of movement forward of the gospel in history. They were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. 
also. Not a different Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit. And it says, for they were hearing them doing what? Speaking with tongues and exalting. Ah, so are these known tongues or unknown tongues? These are not the tongues of 1 Corinthians 14, unknown. These are tongues in which people are exalting God. Quite amazing. They were magnifying God through prophetic utterance. And then when Peter is asked to explain himself, he goes back to Jerusalem and all the bigwigs are like, what are you doing going to the Gentiles, Peter? So he explains, oh, wait a minute, guys, because it's not my fault. I went to them, and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, Acts eleven fifteen through 17. The Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. Acts 10 was just like Acts 2. Just like it, Peter says. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So Jesus would give this message. The greatest exposition of the Holy Spirit is found in John 13 through 17. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us, same Holy Spirit, same demonstration, demonstration, same tongues, same magnifying God. Also, after what? After believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. You believe, you get the Holy Spirit. Who was I to stand in God's way? Not my fault. This is God's fault. This is God's doing. So there we have Acts 10 being identical in experience and purpose and significance to Acts chapter 2. Speaking in languages that people understand, magnifying God. In Acts 19, we did a message on this a, a while back. In our, you know, we had a baptism, and this is the passage that we had to do, or got to do, or did do. Acts 19, 1 through 7, and 1 through 3, it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? How do you get the Holy Spirit? Do you have to pray and fast for weeks? How do you get the Holy Spirit? Do you have to believe some certain doctrine about the Holy Spirit? How do you get the Holy Spirit? All you have to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be adopted by the Holy Spirit as a child of God. You will be born from above. And if God has some specific gifts for you, like speaking in tongues or prophecy or knowledge that makes you a Bible teacher or wisdom that makes you a good ruler in a body of Christ and someone to go to for wisdom, there's nine spiritual gifts and they're all for functionality within the body. They're not play toys. They're for functionality. They equip various people for various functions. Miracles, Those will come and can come, but you get the Holy Spirit when you truly, genuinely believe. That's what these passages say. And these disciples, 
said to Paul, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So they're, they're, they're pretty, you know, they're pretty behind. They're, they're oh, so oh so last year on the knowledge of the gospel. They just didn't understand it at all. So this is people really hearing the true gospel for the first time. And Paul said, and then what were you baptized? And they said, well, John's baptism. And Paul's like, ah, these guys are really not up to date. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who is to come after him, that is to believe in Jesus. When these disciples heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul laid his hands upon him, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking with tongues and doing what? Speaking with tongues and prophesying. Now over in 1 Corinthians 14, I went to that passage because there's speaking in an unknown tongue and then there's prophecy that's a known tongue. And so they were speaking in tongues, perhaps other than their normal language, but it wasn't unknown unto God, it was prophesying. And they were in all about 12 men. So in the three passages in the book of Acts, in which we have this similar occurrence of the Holy Spirit falling and people speaking forth utterance by the Holy Spirit, they are magnifying God in languages of other human beings and perhaps their own. That's what it's about. In every instance... It's an utterance of the Holy Spirit. Now, interestingly, you can look in the Old Testament to see this kind of thing happening. You may remember in Numbers, chapter 11, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel were going through the wilderness and they were getting tired of the same food every day and they started murmuring. And Moses is, again, I gotta deal with these people. They just can't have faith. They just can't discipline their lives. They can't just, you know, not worry about the food, but worry about the kingdom of God. They couldn't do it. They couldn't keep focused. They couldn't stay on message. They couldn't stay on track. And Moses gets depressed and he says, Lord, kill me. Leaders get depressed may not be because of what you're doing, but remember, there's a whole lot of people usually a leader's dealing with, and there's a lot of reasons sometimes to just get depressed. And it's like, Lord, I'm not getting anywhere. I'm wasting my time. These people are still worried about food instead of getting to heaven holy and without blame. What am I supposed to do? So God said, okay, we'll take care of this. Moses, it's clear you're getting worn out, so we're going to get 70 men who are going to help you. You get these 70 men from the, the, the nation of Israel, leaders really, and bring them to the tent of the meeting, and I'm going to take the Holy Spirit that's on you, and I'm going to give it to them. So great, that happened. But then there's this little sidebar in Acts Numbers 11, 26 through 30. But two men had remained in the camp. The name of the one was Eldad, and the name of the other was Medad. So two didn't go to the tent, but they had been enumerated. They were supposed to be there. And the Spirit rested on them. Even though they didn't go to the tent, the Holy Spirit came on them anyway. Now they were among those who had been registered but had not gone to the tent of meeting. And they prophesied in the camp. So here are these guys walking around the camp, whatever that would look like, and they're just prophesying, you know, speaking forth the word of God. 
Now, if you saw that, if someone came walking up the aisle doing that, you'd go, this is a pretty weird place, right? Pretty weird event going on. Well, what were they saying, by the way? What does it mean they prophesied? That's all you get, they prophesied. They weren't Isaiah talking about a future and writing it down, a future coming messianic kingdom. They weren't Jeremiah saying there's a coming new covenant. They weren't Ezekiel saying there's a coming Holy Spirit to be given to people. They weren't Joel saying in the latter days God will pour out. So what were they saying? Interesting question. So a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. This is a big deal. Pretty boring walking around the desert, so something like this would be a big stir in the camp. They're prophesying in the camp. Then Joshua the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, I am a cessationist, and therefore we should restrain them. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord had put his spirit on all of them. And that happened some 1,500 years later, beginning on the day of Pentecost. So what is this prophesying about? They're just walking around going, praise the Lord, and having all the content that was sort of relevant to them at the time. God's the great creator. God brought us forth out of Egypt. God is mighty in his works. God so far has destroyed kingdoms. He has paved the way. He's bringing us to the land of Canaan. God has blessed his people. He's going to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. Who knows what they were saying? But they were prophesying. They were uttering forth. To get closer to home about what it meant that they talked about the mighty works of God, you could look in Luke chapter 1, 40. Six really and following when Mary, remember Mary has been told by the angel she's going to be with child and that's going to be an interesting but challenging uh, event in Mary's life in that particular culture. Nowadays nobody would notice or care, but in that culture they all did. And Elizabeth came and visited Mary and spoke to her and you wonder whether the speaking is actually a prophecy spoke to her and to Mary and remember John the Baptist when he encountered Mary with Jesus in the womb and he's in the womb, he leaps forth and Elizabeth speaks forth. And Mary's remembering what the angel had communicated to her some months before. And Mary's just full of faith. Mary responds with a dynamic exaltation proclaiming God's mighty hand in her life. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. That's how Mary saw herself. She's a servant. She wasn't worried about patriarchy. She's glad to be a servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed for he who is mighty. Hasn't just done great things. He's done great things for me. For me. And holy is his name. So if we wondered what the two fellows in the camp were prophesying, maybe it was something like this. In their life history, in their reference to the redemptive history at the time. 
God is great and he's been great to me. This is very personal. When we worship, it can't just be that God is great. He's, he's great to me. He saved me from my sin. He's fixed the greatest problem in the history of my life, a problem I could never surmount, a problem I could never fix on my own. He has provided a just forgiveness for all of my wretchedness and all of my sin. He who is mighty has done great things. And he hasn't left me an orphan. He's given me his Holy Spirit and I have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit of God, the God of the universe, the one who himself is dangling two billion plus galaxies on his fingertips, just bouncing them around. He's given me his Holy Spirit. He's come to dwell in my heart and his everlasting love has been shed abroad in my life. He who is mighty has done great things. And holy is his name. Not that he's loving, but that he's holy. See, today, everything has to be love. Interesting, in the book of Acts, how many times do you think the word love occurs? Someone take a guess. Three? Do I have three more? Do I hear five? Zero. Zero times does love occur in the book of Acts. Because the framework of the book of Acts is that God is a holy God and his wrath is upon you. It is just wrath. It is righteous wrath. It is deserved wrath. And Jesus has come to save you from your sin. Not give you an emotional time. We live in such a psychologized society where everything gets referenced back to how my emotions reference it. Well, the book of Acts does not give us an emotional gospel. It gives us a powerful gospel. A gospel that deals with a God who is holy is his name. Holy is his name. His love is expressed at Calvary, but holy is his name. His love had to be expressed at Calvary because holy is his name. When you get the Holy Spirit, that's what you start seeing. You start getting out of yourself and the silly idea that my emotions have to be fulfilled. And you start realizing, no, God's justice has to be fulfilled. His wrath has to be assuaged. And Jesus did that at Calvary. That's what the Holy Spirit sheds abroad in the heart. Then the love of God makes sense. That he took my wrath and my justice for me. That's love. Holy is his name. When the Holy Spirit shows up, this is going to be the picture that will be painted. Holy is his name. He that is mighty has done great things. His mercy, there we start talking about the love of God. His mercy is for those that fear him from generation to generation. When the Holy Spirit shows up, the fear of God shows up. Those that fear him God will show his mercy. He's shown his strength with his arm, an Old Testament picture. You know, I was just thinking I'm, I'm right-handed and so I'm always letting my, taking my left hand to feed and my right hand to do things. Kind of feel like one of those crabs with a big claw and a little claw. Well, this is God's arm. His right hand and his holy arm. His strength with his arm. His big crab claw, infinite arm. 
He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from the thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. A prophecy of a future, particularly a future day of judgment. When all those in the world, all the mighty in the world who have oppressed and taken everything they could get from everybody they could find, they're going to have a really bad eternity. And those who have feared God and followed God and understood that he's holy first and foremost, God is light and in him is no darkness at all, they will be lifted up. He has helped us serve in Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. That's a prophecy. That's magnifying God. That's personalizing God and magnifying God. And notice what is involved in this. The person and character of God, he's holy, he's righteous, he's just, he's mighty, he works in the earth in the affairs of men, he brings everything to a just state, if not in this life, in a a day to come, as we'll read in Joel, the great day of God. And God has a purpose of redemption to Abraham. All the way back in Genesis 12, to Abraham. And your seed will all the nations of the earth be blessed, God told Abraham. And now here is Jesus, six months away from the birth of Jesus, and his mother prophesying of what this child will bring into the history of the world forever. We could go on and we could look at Zechariah. It's just sort of a repeat. They all continued in amazement, Acts chapter 2, and with great perplexity saying to one another, what does this mean? What's going on? What does it mean? Well, we're going to be looking at that. That's what Peter's going to answer. It's great. I mean, the question's finally there. God has orchestrated things so people are asking the right question. The Holy Spirit has come Yeah, it's amazing, it's cool, it's this, it's that, but what does it mean? And that's why when the Holy Spirit works in your life, you know, don't don't go off, you know, in crazyville. Figure out what does it mean. Be rational, be intelligible. Just because the Holy Spirit's in your life doesn't mean you're irrational. The Holy Spirit's not irrational. He's rational. What does this mean? Here's what I would say is that in your life, personally, or where was that? Was there some re- revival, they called it anyway, in Tennessee? Was that Asbury? Kentucky? Is that Kentucky? I don't know where that place is. People would ask me for a while, what do you think of the revival? And I'd basically say, well, I don't know. I don't pay attention to it. Because again, 50 years I've watched this stuff just breeze through. Here's how you evaluate a real revival. Right here in Acts 2, Acts 10, Acts 19. First of all, there will be the Word of God at center of everything. If the Word is God is not the center of everything, it's not a revival from the Holy Spirit who wrote the Word of God. It will have God's character as the umbrella over everything, God first and foremost who is holy. 
It can't be about emotions and feeling and, oh, I'm just filled with the love of God. It's great to be filled with the love of God. Is it on the basis of a just and holy adjustment to your sin? And if people have the gifts of the Spirit, great, but what are they doing? Are they magnifying the God who is holy, the God who is righteous, the God who is just, the God of the history of redemption, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose covenants are now fulfilled in Jesus Christ? Is that the God that's being exalted and magnified? Because that's the language that we've seen in Acts 2, Acts 10, and Acts 19. That's what's in the examples that we've seen. Are people genuinely personalizing this holy God in their lives and minds and hearts? Does this word start to have free course in their hearts? Are they repenting? Are they dealing with a holy God? Are they like Isaiah? Chapter 6. I saw the Lord high and lifted up in his train, filled the temple. What's the next response? I'm a sinful person. You see, you have to evaluate the claims of revival based on the revivals in the New Testament. What does this mean? Your own life. How do you know God's working in your life? Well, his word's meaningful to you. You care about things. When you start your praying, you say, Our Father who's in heaven, I'm going to recognize the greatness of God before anything else. That's over everything I think of. It's my Father who's in heaven, not my buddy, my pal, who's in heaven, who's holy, who's just, who's full of glory and honor and majesty. That's how you know God's working in your life. Now, as usual, when something God does something, you're going to have the mockers. Some of the commentaries kind of treated this like, oh, these are people with questions. They're like, no, these are people who are mocking. That's what the scriptures say. They're misinterpreting the whole thing. It's like, you know, people can't speak in a language they don't know. So we don't think it's just because they had some really good you know, Boone's Farm apple wine that really gave them this ability. So the mockers were irrational. They weren't evaluating the evidence properly. They were mocking. They're just drunk. Instead of being amazed and humbled at the mighty works of God that they were hearing, they expressed brazen, sneering ridicule. And this arrogant and contemptuous attitude is what characterizes the new atheism of our day and the blatant, godless secularism of our day. Do not be moved by their unfounded self-confidence, making these statements about things they know nothing of, stating of a surety, oh, well, there is no God, and the state is God, and just mocking everything about the true and living God. Do not be moved by them. Always be ready to give your own personal, clear, confident testimony. 
that I know the person I believe. Because in the end, you know, as people say, you can't prove God. Now you can get pretty close. You can, get, you can stack up all the evidence, but they won't hear it. So, But you have something that they can't touch. Your own testimony. I know the living God. I was debating an atheist several years ago, and it was an interesting conversation back and forth, and he finally said, see, I've proved that God doesn't exist, and I just looked at him and I said, you know, you haven't proved that God doesn't exist. You've just proved that you don't know God. That's all you've proved. You haven't proved that I don't know God. And I'm here to tell you the God you don't know is the one of who you'll repent and believe on Jesus. He'll save you from your sin. I didn't say it that eloquently, but I tried. Your own testimony about the God you know because you have the Holy Spirit in your life. That is what wins the day for you in the end. Well, that wraps up this event, the amazement, the perplexity, what does it mean? And Lord willing, uh, probably in June, because I won't be, next week we have Lord's Supper and after that I'm gone. In June we'll take up Joel's prophecy, an amazing prophecy. And I look forward to uh, going through it with you all. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to your throne. And Lord, when your Holy Spirit is at work, whether it's in our own lives or in the lives of others or in groups and collectives and uh, either supposed or genuine revivals, Lord, we always know that he will be there magnifying you. The Holy Spirit doesn't come to speak of himself, but to speak of Jesus and to speak of you, the great creator. Lord, let us always remember that, that he is the Holy Spirit of truth and he is the Holy Spirit. And Lord, when he comes, we will have regard for you. We will have the fear of God in our lives. What a blessed gift to fear the Lord. Lord, we will have your love shed abroad in our hearts and it will be colored with pictures of Calvary. It will be love that was expressed on a cross, a Roman cross, in 30 AD. Lord, just pray that you would be with us in that always, that you would always bear witness to Jesus in our lives, always bear witness to who you are as the God who is full of glory, the great creator who is full of majesty, that holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, that these things will have meaning, depth of meaning to us. And Lord, thank you that you have given every provision for that. We're adopted as children. We're born of your spirit. You always dwell with us. We have your spirit forever. He will never leave us. Sometimes we may feel empty and abandoned, but we never actually are. We never really are. And Lord, by that spirit, you can give spiritual gifts. Lord, we ask today, if you have spiritual gifts for us, we'd be really happy for it. But Lord, that's sovereignly distributed by you. We can't and do not want to conjure them up. Lord, if you want to give gifts sovereignly, you can. You've given a lot of gifts. We just probably don't notice them. You have given wisdom to certain ones in this body who have an extra measure of it and can give really good, solid counsel. And they're not necessarily elders, Lord. They're not necessarily leaders. They are just people in the body who have wisdom, and, and that's a gift from you. Lord, you've given knowledge, the gift of knowledge. 
where we can open these scriptures and know what they're talking about and understand them and be clear about them. That is a gift from you. That doesn't come from seminaries. That comes from the Holy Spirit in the end. Seminaries can polish it, but they can't give it. Lord, that's a gift of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, let us always treasure it wherever it's found. Lord, there are other gifts, and we just would be glad for you to distribute them. But above all, let us be men and women and boys and girls of faith, faith in Jesus, faith in the living God, uh, always positive, always with joy because we're full of faith. And because we're full of hope, faith and hope, hope of a new heavens and a new earth, hope in a God who, uh, Lord, uh, makes the proud to be small and ra- rises up those from the dunghill, the humble, those who fear you. And that there is a day of judgment when all things will be made right and when we will be glorified with Jesus, the Son of God. And love, love that endures forever, love that is just part of your eternal being, love that is the true essence of being bound together. That we would have that love in our hearts, our lives, love expressed, love uh, nurtured, loved, cultivated. Love would be real to us. All these come from your Holy Spirit and just pray we would not grieve him in any way. As we talked about last week, Lord, we would put away all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and railing. Ephesians chapter four. Put it all away. Put away gossip. Put away any lying to one another. Just put it away. That we will be honest and open-hearted. And Lord, we will look for the good in others. And we just put away all darkness, every form of it. And Lord, we would live by the Spirit. That we would be a church that doesn't live by theology or that lives by the Holy Spirit. That's the life. That's the dynamic. Lord Jesus, give this to us. We ask. It's a gift. We can't earn it. It's like we can't earn anything else. And we'll thank you for it always. And it's his name we pray. Amen.